Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. In the book of Psalms and turn to Psalm 14. Psalm 14, and we're going to be, I'll read the entire psalm. It's only seven verses, but I'll read the whole psalm just to give us context, but we'll primarily be focusing on the first three verses. So before we read, I'd venture to say that all of us, if uh, almost all of us, if not all of us in here, probably looked in a mirror this morning. Um... We look in mirrors because, well, some of us like to see ourselves, right? We like, to see, we like to see our own reflection in the mirror looking back at us. But we do not usually like to see the imperfections, right, that we see on our face. Uh, some, because the mirror shows us who we really are. We see ourselves for who we really are. We can, we can go about our day and thinking we look a certain way and thinking we look as best we do, but as soon as you look in a mirror, you see what everybody else sees. You see an objective reality. You see yourself for who you really are. And in a spiritual sense, that's what we're going to see this morning in this psalm. In Psalm 14, we see a, a true indictment on the human race. We're seen for who we really are in and of ourselves. And so read with me Psalm 14. We'll be, again, we'll be reading all seven verses, but as we look through it, we'll primarily be focusing on the first three verses. So Psalm 14 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now, and as we've read your word, we've read the truth in it, and we pray that you would open our hearts to receive, Lord, the truth that you would communicate communicate to us through your word this morning. Uh, Guard my heart, Lord, as, as we look at this, and as we look at your word, Lord, and see what are we to do now as we see the indictment on ourselves. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So again, it's, it's a mirror pointing back to us, right? It's a true indictment on our human race apart from God. And so we look at verse 1, right? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool here is a, obviously, if you know, you're familiar with the book of Proverbs or even the Psalms themselves or Ecclesiastes, right? The word fool occurs many, many times, particularly in the book of Proverbs, but... 
Interesting, though, the word, the Hebrew word for fool in this passage is a different Hebrew word. Uh, this one is only used a few times in the Scripture. But nonetheless, the fool here is a significant word, right? It says the fool says in his heart there is no God. The Scripture does not say that the uneducated man or the unlearned man says in his heart there is no God because it's not a matter of intellect, right? It's not a matter of of an ascent to a certain level of knowledge, right? It's not like, oh, you know, this poor guy just can't seem to grasp or wrap his head around God, just like, you know, perhaps, you know, a young child in third grade is trying to wrap his mind around doing long division, right? Some, some of us probably would still have difficulty with that too, uh, even us adults. Uh, and it, it's not the same thing. It's not that you know, we have to, you know, oh, okay, I did this math problem and I just made an error, I miscalculated. When the fool says in his heart there is no God, it is a moral declaration. Ultimately, foolishness in the scripture is a moral condition. It's not an intellectual one. When the scripture speaks of fool, it could easily well say the wicked man says in his heart. And you're not a fool simply because you do not know things you do not know certain things intellectually, right? But it's because of the moral choices or the immoral choices or your moral behavior what makes one a fool. And this is because the Scripture, unlike our day and age now, the Scripture teaches that our actions are influenced by our belief. We do something based upon what we believe. As Proverbs, 23, uh, sorry, Proverbs 27, verse 3 uh, which is a, a popular rendering of that verse, says, as he thinks within himself, so he is. So as a man thinks, so he is. Unlike our day and age now, which says, you know, I can kind of believe something, but it's not really going to influence how I behave. Well, that's, that's simply not true, and God's word speaks against that. So the fool says in his heart. So of course we know there are some today who say with their lips, right, that there is no God. They might say it with their mouths that there is no God, but many, maybe they might not say it with their mouth, but many say it with their hearts as well, based upon their actions, right? As the common kind of American proverb is, your actions speak louder than your words. So there are many who live as if there is no final judgment. They live as if there is no one who sees their secret sins, no one to hold them accountable. And when we compare this with Romans chapter 1, a uh, familiar passage of Scripture that I'll read here in a second, a few verses. It's foolish to deny God's existence. And again, as I was saying before, it's not simply just an intellectual statement. It's not, oh, I just can't, I just, you know, like I don't believe that, you know, this football team is better than the other, or I, I don't believe that this is the best way to do this, right? I just, I can't wrap my mind around it, but this is not like that. This is a moral statement. This speaks to someone's heart and where they are morally before God. It's not simply just a misjudgment intellectually, right? Not like I miscalculated on the math problem. This is different. No, this reflects a defect morally. As Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 22 say, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And obviously the context there is they, they know the God who exists. They know, but they don't give thanks to him, and instead they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They just simply don't want to accept it. They suppress it. You can't suppress something that you don't think is there, right? You suppress something that is there that you don't want to deal with. So he has convinced himself that which he wishes, namely that there is no God. He's convinced himself of that idea. He's convinced himself that that is reality to his detriment. Like a man convincing himself who, is, who has received a, a deathly diagnosis and who has been told, you are deathly ill, but instead of dealing with it and trying to search for a remedy, they simply deny it and say, no, I don't want to hear it. I'm not, I'm not sick. And in so doing that, they cut them off from any remedy, any hope of having life. And once a people chooses to suppress that innate knowledge of the God who created you, that natural knowledge that God has put on every man's heart, once we do that, then there's no legitimate foundation for a moral standard. There's no legitimate foundation for right and wrong, right? If there's no ultimate authority, then who are you to say what is right and wrong? You're just, as much as th- you're just as much an authority as I, right? If there's no objective truth, right? Um, who, uh, to, to illustrate this, who, uh, how many of us watched the Super Bowl a few weeks ago, right? It, it's okay. I'm raising my hand. It's okay. I watched it. So probably, hopefully not the halftime show, but at least we can watch the, we can watch the game. <laughs> um, so ultimately, right, imagine, imagine the Super Bowl without any referees, right? What a, what a chaotic thing that would be. Because, you know, oh, that, that was a personal foul on number 51, 15-yard penalty. No, no, it wasn't. I didn't foul him, or you didn't see that. Or it's, it's all subjective, right? The game would never be, there would be no progress. What is needed is someone who is, in a sense, above the game, outside of the game, an objective view saying that was a penalty or this was not or, or, or whatnot. And, of course, you know, you might, you know, human referees can make errors or can be, theoretically, they can be bought off or whatnot. But the creator of the universe cannot. He makes no mistakes. And so outside of that, ultimately, what I think is right is just, well, what's, what's best for me, right? What's best for me? What I think or what, what is in my best, my own self-interest? And so the scripture says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They have become corrupt. The Hebrew word there gives a sense of ruin or decay, something that's rotted. Think of rotten fruit or decayed fruit. It's, it's no good anymore. They're corrupt. They do abominable deeds. Right? And the conclusion there in that verse is, there is none who does good. It doesn't get any stronger than that. And the, there's one commentator who says, kind of explaining this verse, who says, regarding there is none who, do, who does good, ultimately, none of their actions are really and thoroughly good and pleasing to God. And so this goes to the, the idea, right, of our depravity. You might have heard that word, depravity of man. And ultimately, what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that every person that has ever lived is as bad as they could be, right? Not everybody is as bad or sinful as we could be. That's not what depravity is saying. Because we know that God puts certain boundaries, like 
government and law and family and even the church, right, to, to kind of safeguard against something so that society can kind of still continue on. God has certain uh, barriers in society, but ultimately everything the fool does is tainted with sin, with his own or her own selfishness. And so this has been illustrated like this before. This is a kind of a classic illustration, but I'll, I'll share it here. So you know what, you know, you read the New Testament, you hear of Jesus healing lepers, right? Somebody with leprosy, a severe skin condition that is pretty difficult to, to contract, to, to get it. But once you get it, it's almost impossible to, to get rid of it. And so that's why it was such a miracle that Jesus actually healed this person with leprosy because that had never been seen before. And it's something you can actually see. It's not something hidden. It's not like, oh, he healed them of their headache or something like we see on TV today. And that's just, that's, that's, uh, that's fool, foolishness, right? And so, but so, so you know a, a leper, right? They, they have, it's a severe skin condition. And let's say somebody came in here with leprosy and we say, okay, we, wanna, we want to help them, right? So we get a really nice robe or, or, or blanket or something to cover them with and say, okay, good. Now they look, they, they, they look and feel nice. Their leprosy is covered. Right? But you give it enough time, the blood, the wounds that are there on their skin are going to seep through that robe. And then you will be able to see the true depravity, for lack of a better word, that is underneath that robe. And in the same way, our good works before God, what we think is good, ultimately is, is just like that robe. It might cover it. We might think it covers it and we don't see it for, for a bit. But ultimately, our true wickedness will seep through our good works and at the end of the day, right, we can't fool God. God sees, and he sees our true and wicked heart before him. And so ultimately, there's nothing truly good that the fool can do. God can see right through our good works, straight to our heart. In verse 2, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven. And this is kind of an interesting phrase. He looks down from heaven on the children of man. And you might, uh, maybe your translation might even say the children of Adam, right? That's because the word in Hebrew, Adam, simply means man. And so it, uh, one translate, uh, uh, a true translation might say that he looks down on the children of Adam. And, it, and the Hebrew phrase, therefore, looked down, literally means bent over, like he bent down. So it's like God is, it's almost like he's bending down like this, like looking down on the world. That's the language, that's the picture that David is trying to share in the psalm. Obviously, God doesn't have a body like that to bend down in heaven, God the Father, but the picture there gives the impression that God, it's an anthropomorphism, right? It's giving a kind of a human, uh, a human description of God, which he doesn't really have a body, but he's, it's like he's looking down on the children of man to see if any understands. And your translation might say, any who act wisely, that's what the the, the meaning of the, of the text there means. Not just intellectu intellectually understand, but does any act wisely? Does any really understand that there is a God instead of just denying that there is no God? So they try to understand that there is a God and who those who seek, is there any who seek after God? He looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who seek after God. Does anyone seek after the one true God. We might seek after little g, little gods, right, that we've imagined up in our own minds. But contrary to the fool who says there is no God, 
Not only is there only one true God, but he is watching the deeds of men from heaven. He's looking down to see if there's any who seek after him. In verse 3, they have all turned aside. They have all turned aside. Turned aside from what? From God and his law. Right? This reminds me of Isaiah chapter 53, uh, that great chapter of the suffering servant uh, who's Christ, where it says, all like sheep have gone astray. Right? All have turned away. Right? All have sheep have gone astray. They've turned to his own way. Not to the way of the one true God, or not to the way of Christ, but turned his own way. So the fool wants no part of the God who created him. He's not concerned with his ways, but he would rather keep going down this destructive path that he really knows leads to destruction, but he doesn't want to, he doesn't care. He's convinced himself somehow, he has that natural knowledge of the one true God who will hold him accountable one day, but he's gotten to the point so far to where he's convinced himself, no, it's, it's not. I'm, I'm not going to have to give an account one day. Like a man driving down a highway and the sign says, dead end ahead, the, the road is going to close. But no, I'm going to be stubborn. I'm going to keep going. Nope, nope, I'm not going to pay attention to it. What is going to happen? Destruction. They have all turned aside from the one true way. Together, going on in, in the passage, together they have become corrupt. Together they've become corrupt. It's not just kind of a, an isolated incident, right? Like in Romans 1 where it says not only, do they, not only do they commit these abominable deeds, but they approve of those who do. So this is like a, this is a group effort here. Together they have become corrupt. Everyone, we're all in this together. And going on, there is none who does good. And David doesn't just stop there. He says, there is none who does good, not even one. It's almost like he's imagining the fool hearing this or reading this or whatnot or being confronted with the fact that there's none who does good. And he wants to, say, he wants to protest and say, really? Like, none? I mean, my, my so-and-so or, my or so-and-so, they, they do good. And it's like David is like reiterating the same fact. Not even one. Not even one, a very profound statement reiterating his point. And I have to stop and say here, contrary to many churches and church leaders, perhaps we've been in these kinds of churches that want to say that man's heart is, you know, we're sinful, but basically we're good, right? We're basically good. Our good outweighs our bad. But no, the passage says there is none who seeks after God. Absolutely none, not even one. Man will never choose God, left to his own devices. He'll never choose God. Why would he? Because he knows his sin. He knows his wickedness before God. And so he might want to turn to a God who is like him, right? I, my flesh wants that. I want a God who's like me and can, who can just turn away from sin and just let it go and not, not hold anyone accountable, kind of just want to be loved and, you know, have a, have a PR team and just want his image, want everybody to accept him, Right? And so the non-believer is not just innocently roaming around, kind of looking for God, looking for the God of the Bible, but just needs to be kind of nudged in the right direction, right? He just kind of be, needs to be corrected on a couple little things, and here, you can find him here, right? No, he needs to be told that he's a sinner, and, that, and not just that he's a sinner, but that that sin brings God's judgment. That's the problem. If you try to witness or minister to, uh, to people, 
you know, many times they won't, they usually will not deny that they're a sinner, right? You, if you've, if you've uh, ministered to others on the street, you know this. They typically won't deny. They won't say, no, I'm not a sinner. The problem is that they don't see the destruction and the, the weight of that sin that they've committed, that because of just one sin, they deserve God's judgment. So he needs to be told that apart from a supernatural work of God, he will always be a slave, be a slave to his own sin. And again, he may, you know, we, uh, you know, before we were saved, we may, have, we may have thought that we were seeking after God. When in reality, we might have been God was really seeking us, but the God that we wanted or that we were seeking was a God that we made up in our own image. Right, as, as one of my old pastors used to say, God created man in his image, and then man has been returning the favor ever since <laughs> to our detriment and to our shame. So he may choose a self-made image of God, but he'll never choose the God of Abraham, the God of the Bible, because this God, because God, the God of the Bible is completely holy and cannot even look upon sin. So we cannot make new converts. Do not, do not ever be deceived that we can make new converts by dressing up the gospel real nice and shining it up so that it makes so that it it might make others feel good and it's more appealing and not as offensive to outsiders such a gospel is no gospel at all as paul writes in galatians chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you let him be accursed and Paul doesn't leave it there. He repeats it. As we have said before, so I now say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So men will only and can only come to Christ if the Father draws him, according to Jesus in John chapter 6. Man must be born again. There's none who does good None who seeks after God. And when we try to, if, if, if somebody wants to water this down for fear that others will turn their back on us because we're, we're, what we're saying is too hard, the good news of the gospel is lost, completely lost, when we do not tell men their true depravity before a holy God. They could never see the grace that God exercised on their behalf. It's like someone, again, I kind of mentioned the issue of being ill before. It's kind of like someone being healed of a disease and they never really knew or never understood how dire a situation they were in. So when they're told what a great act of healing that had been committed on them and they just thought they had a headache, like, okay, I just had a headache. What was I, re what's the big deal? What was I really healed from? What's, right? Because they, if they were not really told no, if you don't get healed for this or if you don't take this, it's not going to be good for you. But if we just think we were just kind of injured mildly, which is like what, we, what some want to tell people spiritually that, you know, you're just kind of, you just need to be nudged in the right direction. The grace of the gospel is completely robbed of them. So enough of this nonsense that people can come to God on their own, Right? And then if we just make the church more comfortable, as comfortable as we can for outsiders, then that'll get converts. I mean, don't get me wrong. I speak for, for us as the church here. If you're, if you're visiting, we want this to be as pleasant an experience for you as possible. We don't want to 
offend because of ourselves, right? But more than anything, we want to, to share the one true God and his truth so that you see your need for him and realize that, like all of us, apart from him, we're eternally condemned because there's none who does good, not even one. All have sinned and stand condemned before a holy God. Man must be born again. And in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 20, you know, we, we like John 3, 16, and, and it's, it's, it basically sums up the gospel in, a, in one sentence. But I'll read chapter 3, verse 16, and read a, a few verses on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Verse 19, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light so that his deeds will be exposed. And it's kind of like as I'm thinking about this, you know, why do men like darkness? What is the point here? What is what is the gospel of John? What is John writing here? What is, what is his point? Why do men like darkness? Because when you well, think of the contrast, what does light do? It reveals, right? It, reveal, it reveals what is there that was there before, but now we just see it, right? It's like, it's like if you're ever, you know, at night and you turn on a light and, and, and unfortunately you see a cockroach on the floor, right? But usually when you turn on the light, they scatter. Why? Because they can't take the light. In the same way, men, when, when Christ's truth is proclaimed, the man in his own sin cannot take it. He turns away. He rejects it. He simply cannot put up with it. Because he knows his deeds are wicked before a holy God. And so instead of dealing with it, right, as we said before, he wants to convince himself that there is no God. There is no judgment. I mean, maybe there's a God, but he's certainly not a God that cares about what I do, right? We might have heard that before. So we've looked at the fool and how the fool lives as if there is no God, no accountability, no one to hold him accountable, no, no judgment day. He's corrupt. No one does good. None understands. There's none who seeks after God, not even one. And so you may think, yes, that is the fool. That's the fool. But lest we think too highly of ourselves, lest we be puffed up and point a finger and not remember of who we are before God without Christ. And we think that this is simply speaking about those who would deny God's existence. Let me remind us that in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in order to condemn the entire world, he uses this passage. And that infamous to the world, but famous to the church, that passage in Romans 3 where Paul indicts the entire world of sin, he quotes this psalm and applies it not just to the fool, but to everyone, to even the Jew. In Romans chapter 3, verse 9, I'll read verses 9 and several verses down. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. 
For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. So Paul says, as it is written. So he's getting this from somewhere. This didn't originate with Romans 3. Verse 10, as it is written, there is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And they have not known the way of peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, man, it's just when you read that, it's like, wow, we should just pack up and go home. I mean, man, that's, that is strong. But Paul applies this to everyone before God. Without God's grace and doing a work in our heart, this is us. This is everyone. Those of us who know Christ now, yes, praise God, we have newness of life, but without him, this is us. These words describe us and more. This is all we have to boast about in and of ourselves. Certainly myself. I mean, I, I don't even want to think about what my life would look like uh, without Christ saving me. I don't even want to think about it. And, and the thing is, on the outside, I might have looked like a nice, nice little teenage boy, but in my heart, I was as wicked as you could be. And I know I speak for many of us here, for many of you. I can't even imagine where I would be without Christ saving me. So let us not point a finger to the world, right, with a heart that's not mindful of the fact that this was once us. As we remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul is uh, giving one of those statements where he says, uh, do you not know that neither the sexually immoral or homosexuals or thieves, or drunkards, or swindlers, swindlers, and the greedy, and so on. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you not know this? But such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And as that verse goes on, by whom were you washed? In whose name? In Jesus Christ's name, the Lord. In other words, the one who does good. As you might have seen in the bulletin, and maybe you looked at the sermon title and thought maybe that was a typo, but it's not. When we say there is none who does good, that is true. That's what we just looked at. But if you remove the N from the word one, it just changes everything. There is one who does good, the God-man, Christ Jesus, who came from heaven, born of a virgin, unlike any of us, was actually conceived by the Holy Spirit and as a result did not possess our evil, sinful, fleshly nature. He lived a perfect life, loving God every moment of his life, loving his Father and being obedient to his Father every moment of every day. And so because he lived a perfect life, he could die, was called the perfect death. Because he lived a perfect life, he was worthy to pay for the sins of all who believe in him. This is something we can, that I've tried to tell my kids about, about Christ and why trying to understand why did Christ or how could Christ pay for the sins of all who would believe in him? Because in the same way, like using myself, I can't pay for someone else's sin. 
because I have my own sin, probably more than the, pers- than the other person, right? I have my own sin, so I have my own debt. I can't pay somebody else's, but Christ is perfect and lived a perfect life, and thus he is worthy to take on the sins of everyone who would believe in him. So have you ever thought of that? I mean, Jesus living a perfect life, not for one second ever having an impure thought, never when someone mistreated him, not for one second ever just wanted to retaliate, right? Not even, not even think it, because we know based on chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 5, even if you think it, it's like before God you've already committed it. Not even thinking it. You know, maybe we restrain ourselves and don't ever act out against someone who mistreats us, but maybe we think we want to. We, we, might, we might think about it in our minds, but Christ always responded, always responding with grace. Was, he was born to die. If you look at just a few psalms later, Psalm 22, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ was born to die, bearing the guilt of the sin for all of God's people. And that sin must be dealt with. This is what we need to tell men. This is what we need to tell others. That sin must be dealt with, right? The sinner, a lot of, is again, as I said, if you witness to others, or if you've tried street preaching or, or any of these things, if you minister to others kind of on the street or to strangers, you might, you'll probably hear, yeah, I, and if you ask them, you know, do you know you're a sinner? It's rare to find someone who actually denies that. They'll say, yeah, I'm a sinner, sure. I mean, who's not? I'm not perfect, right? Are you perfect? <laughs> and, and so they'll, they'll admit that. But the problem is that they don't see. We need, to, we need to, to convey what the Scripture conveys, that that sin, the wages of sin is death. You know, you, you, go, to your, you go to your job, right? You put in your hours. You receive your wage, what you've earned, right, for your work. You've, you get a certain amount per hour or whatever, and, you, and you've put in your time. I deserve my paycheck, right? And so basically our lives before God is deserving of death before God. And not just physical death, obviously. We know that is spiritual death. And so God will not simply let the guilty go free. And, but God dealt with this sin, with the sin of his people on the cross. And so either your sin is either paid by Jesus on the cross or you pay for it yourself before God in judgment, in, a, in hell, in a place called hell. And so, so what we would, if you're visiting or if you don't know Christ, maybe you're even part of the church and you don't know Christ and haven't really, really surrendered to Christ, do that now so that you can be forgiven of your sin. There's no other hope, no other remedy for your sin other than turning to Christ. And so turn to him and so that on that day when you stand before God, you can say that there's no other, there's no other thing that I bring. There's no other righteousness that I have other than trusting in, other than the righteousness of Christ, trusting in him and what he did because he was perfect. He had his own righteousness in and of himself, unlike us. And we're on that cross that he was treated as if he committed your sin. And that thus, if you turn to him, God will see you and treat you as if you had Christ's righteousness. That's the only other remedy. That's the only way. And so, as, uh, as Jonathan Edwards once said, you know, concerning our good works and what can our good works get us with God? 
right? And he said, your good works will no more appease God's wrath or his judgment than a spider web can stop a rock from falling. What will a spider web do to a giant boulder? Nothing. It won't slow it down. In fact, the boulder will destroy the spider web. It does nothing. So other than our only hope is this trusting in the, in the work of Christ on the cross, that there's no other righteousness that we have, and it's only because of what he did on our behalf. So there's none of us who does good, not even one. None of us sought after God, but we've all turned away, either sought out our own desires and our own making ourselves our God or seeking out little g gods. So there's none who seeks after God, but praise him that there is a God who seeks after sinners. And praise him that there is one that does good, and that is Christ. Let's pray.